Hello, everybody. I am Chase Jarvis. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. This is where I sit down with the world's top creatives, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders, and I do everything in my power to unpack actionable, valuable insights aimed at helping you live your dreams in your career, in hobby, and in your life. My guest today is LeVar Burton. This was a spectacular spectacular conversation. You know LeVar because he was cast in the groundbreaking role of Kunta Kinte in the landmark television series Roots. I think it came out originally in 1977. He went on to have an amazing career, uh, but, but back to that Roots thing, he was 19 when that came out. Found himself on the cover of Time Magazine, among other things. He's also Geordi in Star Trek, The Next Generation, which people love him there. An incredible artist in so many ways. Uh, And he is the host and executive producer of the PBS series Reading Rainbow. The guy is all over the place. We talked about so many things, you know, literacy and, and the foundation of reading being one of those things. We talked about, you know, what I go around saying all the time, creativity is the new literacy. And we actually actually sort of compare those and how reading is such an amazing foundation for self-education. And obviously, I'm all about self-education. But we, we probe into all sorts of other things as well. First of all, LeVar's meteoric rise at such a young age and now sort of looking back, um, how much LeVar learned from that and how much we can learn from LeVar's trajectory. Actually, why sort of early success in anything uh, in sports, in career, in, in whatever might always not be great. In fact, it can be dangerous. Gosh, what else we talk about? We talked about uh, just a lot of advice for young creatives, young artists looking to break into not just acting, but really any industry. Uh, We talked about hacking the education system, you know, things like Creative Live, things like reading and, and the fact that we can all sort of own that in this new era in which we live. Uh, And we actually talked a fair bit about race, race relations, uh, about his sort of African-American experience. And actually, he reframes it in a beautiful way that I'll save. You have to listen to the episode to check it. But just, I loved our conversation. And we ended up talking for a long time after uh, as well. But it's a very, very dense episode for sure. But now I'm going to do my part and get the heck out of the way so you can listen to the awesome LeVar Burton. But before we get into the show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest hub for online creative education. Education in photo, video, art design, music and audio, and the ability to make a living and a life in those disciplines. It's the highest quality, highly curated classes taught by the world's top experts. We're talking Pulitzer Prize winners, Oscar winners, Grammy Award winners, New York Times bestselling authors, and the best entrepreneurs of our time. Names like Richard Branson, Mark Cuban, Ariana Huffington are on the platform. And you get classes taught from guys like Tim Ferriss, Lewis Howes, uh, Ramit Sethi. I, again, I could list uh, a thousand other names of the top photographers, designers, musicians, the best in class. You get it. Now, right now, if you're familiar with me and my work, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. Isn't that a company that you started, Chase? Well, yes, it is. In fact, Creative Live makes this entire podcast possible. And in fact, all of my longstanding Chase Jarvis Live shows. Creative Live has millions of students around the world. More than 2 billion minutes of education have been consumed on that video platform. So, you know, that's a little bit of the sort of the what and the how behind Creative Live. But here's the why, which I think is so critical. 
Creative Live exists to help you live your dreams in career, hobby, and life. In short, I started Creative Live with a bunch of really committed friends because we saw a, a big need in the world. We wanted to help our peers and friends and, and folks out there in the world transition to new careers, live new dreams, take the leap, if you will, into an entirely different sort of direction where you can leave that job, maybe your job with the man, and strike out on your own. I also saw my peers in the photo and the design world needing to sort of up their skills and get ahead. And I saw friends who were happily working at great companies but wanted to pursue their hobby to a next level that you know might someday parlay into a side hustle. So we built that platform. Uh, these classes at Creative Live are the most highly and authentically produced of any of the online video platforms you'll experience. The top experts, it's all shot with 48 cameras, all in HD, beautifully presented and accessible on desktop, tablet, mobile. You know I stand for quality and that's what Creative Live uh, puts out. To that end, I have also taken it upon myself to curate a handful of my very favorite classes and mix them in with some of the top performing classes on Creative Live. And I'll bake that into a landing page called creativelive.com slash hustle just for you. This community listens to our podcast here. So you should go there and you should check that out as a special thank you for being a podcast listener. If you find a class that you love, either from the ones that I've curated or elsewhere on the site, and you want to buy it, during checkout, enter the code CHASER. That's my name plus an R, just C-H-A-S-E-R. And do that during checkout and you'll get 25% off your order. Uh, I think that's awesome and I hope you do too. So thanks very much for checking it out. Let me know what you think. Now that's it for the sponsors. Uh, now let's get into the show. LeVar, thank you very much. My pleasure. Again, appreciate it. Yeah, man. All the way down here in Los Angeles to talk to you. I opened our uh, meeting just a few minutes ago with a reminder that you and I have met once before. We and have. and uh, Sundance 2012, 11, 12, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I yeah. think he was exploding on the scene. You were talking a lot. Hit Record Joe. Yes. I think, it was the, it was, I think it was the launch, the official launch of Hit It was, Joe. literally, you're right. And yeah. I remember Adrian Grenier, who's yeah, also a friend. It was the very first uh, demonstration, public demonstration of Square. It was. Yes. You're right. Yeah. And Adrian Grenier, who's also a friend, sent his first tweet yes, that day. That's right. That's right. He's good, good guy. He's probably got good. about a jillion followers by he now. He does, I know. Yeah. He's like, you know, went from zero to 150,000 in like, I don't know, two weeks or something. He's Crazy. a good guy. Also been, a, been on the show before. But this show in particular, I was very motivated uh, to have you here because you're re-releasing Roots. Yes, we are. I'm okay. Uh, we were talking about this again before the camera started rolling. That I have a very young memory of Roots, but it was very impactful mm -hmm. because I, I didn't I didn't understand the depth of the story as a young person. Mm -hmm. um, I've since come to know it as a classic. I think as a lot of the people who were my age or maybe older, it was impactful. Mm -hmm. uh, you're bringing it back, and yeah, it's dropping yeah. on May first. Uh, uh, May thirtieth. May thirtieth. The Memorial Day weekend is the uh, May thirtieth is the first of four consecutive nights, eight hours in total. We made four two-hour movies with four different directors <laughs> on two continents simultaneously, oh. and I'm really, really proud and and excited for people to see this new interpretation, this new version. Of roots. Well, you've spent so much time on this side of the camera. Yeah, I understand you're also producing or executive producing. Or? Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm on the on the producing line on the executive producing line for for the new roots. Um, it, it it was uh, ultimately 
um, a creative decision for me to not be on camera. And I really felt that um, my experience as well as my connection to the material was best served um, behind the camera wow. this time around. What, what in particular led to that decision? Because I, I mean, you have you lived the original. Mm -hmm. You uh, have lived through, as we talked early, race relations in specifically in America. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like you can bring that point of view to bear most mostly behind the camera? Or oh, w without question. Number one, you know, having played the original Kunta the first time around, um, my experience has been that Kunta has become an international symbol for the indomitability of the human spirit. That, um, that character and that portrayal is so strong um, that there was no way I could really get away with playing anyone else. And, um, and like I said, it was, it was just, I think, I, I believed I was able to make better contributions. Um, for instance, in the casting of the new Kunta. I bet. Um, and, and, and as sort of the, the elder in the mix this time around, um, and the connective tissue to the original yeah. roots, um, uh, producer was uh, a much, uh, it gave me the access that I needed. It gave me the opportunity to be involved with the project at the DNA level yeah. and, and to really give my, give voice to my creative concerns and, and desires for the project. Um, having such a, an emotional connection and attachment yeah. to the original. Powerful. Yeah. Uh, how old were you when you did the first one? I was 19. I was, uh, I was a sophomore at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Roots was actually my first professional audition. <laughs> That's um, crazy. Yeah. The first thing you ever do, it yeah. just yeah. wins all kinds of awards. Emmys is so impactful to so many people. It, it was a, uh, powerful. It, 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 it was an extraordinary experience. And having returned to that experience 40 years later has been an amazing journey for me on a personal level. Because until now, I really believe my experience was that life is really linear in nature. And this year, um, I have experienced that life is actually circular, that you know, it is possible to come back to the same place you were on the wheel, but different, right? Yes. I'm, I'm very different than I was 40 years ago. 40 years ago, I was the kid. I was the new kid on the block. My first day as an actor, Cicely Tyson played my mother. Maya Angelou played my grandmother. I worked with <laughs> Lou Gossett and, and Moses Gunn and Harry Rhodes and all of these people that I had seen all of my life on, on screen and read about in, 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 in books. Um, this time around, I was the elder statesman. I was, I was the guy um, that when I walked on the set, people were like, oh my God, he's here, he's here. Um, so if you live long enough, right, you get to experience the circular nature of life. One of the things that we've, we've got a handful of different audiences that are on the other side of this camera. Mm -hmm. um, I, I roughly put them into two buckets when I'm talking about uh, their personal creative journey. There are people who are really excited and interested, the way I describe it, to go from zero to one, mm -hmm. to leave something that uh, is unfulfilling, that isn't really them pursuing their dreams. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and then folks who have already started in that journey and then want to sort of maximize it. Mm. Um, so for the people who go from zero to one, the way I talk about it is uh, do something instead of nothing. Start making, mm. start creating, mm -hmm. start participating in the world. Mm -hmm. But what I'm interested in is for the people who are trying to go from one to 10, how, how, did you, how do you decide what creative projects to pursue? Yeah. Because to have Great that, question. Okay. To me, Great there's question. a lot of gravity in that yeah. and a lot to be learned because yeah. no one talks about this stuff. So yeah. help us understand how you have made so, so many wise decisions. Uh, well, I don't know that my decisions have all been wise. Oh. However, <laughs> I can state unequivocally that, that all of the decisions, at least the major decisions in my life as well as in my career have been guided by one thing. What's that? Passion. Find out that which you are passionate about and you, and you have a key to what's gonna make you happy. I love when you said that you've been doing this for 40 years. Yeah. It, to, to me, that's a, like, you can't do anything for 40 years unless you, unless unless you, you love, love it. it. And there have been times throughout the course of my career when I have been absolutely stumped, stymied, um, up against a wall, uh, depressed, comatose you know in 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 my inertia yeah um and at the end of the day i've always found a place inside of me to reconnect to that uh, which i have passion for right so let's go back to your let's call it your first decision to pursue this role right uh, you're 19 years old. Yeah. You, I mean, I can't even fathom being on, this, on set with all the people that you just named, let alone in your first, like literally your first role. So what got you to go from zero to one? Um, I, I left the Catholic seminary in 1974. Catholic um, seminary? Yeah, I studied for the priesthood for four years. How did I not know this? Uh, That's my bad on the research. <laughs> no way. Well, I come from a family. My mother was a, an English teacher and a social worker. All the women on my mom's side of the family are teachers or, or social workers. All the men on my dad's side of the family tend to be soldiers or ministers. So it was not, um, it was not unusual for me to have that, uh, that, that calling, really. Um, my mom, as a teacher, raised me Catholic because that was the best education available. Mm -hmm. My mom's an extraordinary human being, an overachiever, um, graduated from college at the age of 19, first person in her family to go to college, um, recognized that I would, um, as a young black male, grow up in a world that would oftentimes be hostile to my presence simply because of the color of my skin. So she moved uh, our family to the West Coast, which was more forward thinking yeah. than the Midwest, where she was from, Kansas City, wow. Missouri. And she educated, she made sure that, that my sisters and I had a parochial school education because that was the best education available. And the best thing she believed she could do for me as my mother was to provide me with an education, the leveler of the playing field so that I could compete on an even footing with what I refer to as my melanin challenged classmates. Right? <laughs> Without skin pigment? Right. <laughs> I like that. Right? That's a, that's a very solid play right there, very solid play. So, so having, that, having been immersed in that culture of, of, of parochial school education, priests then became my most constant exposure to male role models. And, and then when you, when you factor in, you know, my mother had a second career as a social worker. I just grew up in a house that, number one, where reading was stress. My mom is an English teacher 
speaking the king's English and reading voraciously was emphasized. Um, and not just by mandate, but by example. My mom read in front of me my whole life, right? So I got the example that reading is as much a part of the human experience as is breathing, okay? And so then when my mom became a social worker, it was like, oh, I, I get it. We are supposed to dedicate our lives to some sort of service. And when I decided not to become a priest, I was looking around for, so what am I going to do now? And, um, and you know, one thing that had always had major attraction for me um, was theater arts. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget, I was, I was standing in the mirror in the bathroom. I think for, I'm not the only one, I think a lot of key personal decisions for people happen in the bathroom. In the bathroom. Alone time, it's, yeah, exactly. it's honest, honest it's time. Honest time. Yeah. It's honest time. So looking in the mirror in the bathroom, I was like, well, you know what? Um, I, I think I can do this. I mean, I know I, have, I know I have some talent and I know that I love it. When I'm on stage, I feel very much alive. Um, and I also, part of the appeal for the priesthood for me was really, I used to have this dream um, as a seminarian of my first sermon as an ordained priest. And the setting would change. Sometimes it was in a small, you know, church in a parish. Sometimes it was in a, a fairly large or grand cathedral, but the feeling was always the same. I had the feeling on the pulpit that I was reaching people, that whatever it was I was saying, the message was landing. And I think that that, that part really appealed to the, the actor in me. Um, being part of a spiritual community or, or, or representing the spiritual aspect of the nature of community uh, made sense to me. And Cellularly, though, you could feel it. Yeah, like, okay. absolutely. I, absolutely. Yeah, that's the intuition, that's right. your gut, that's the passion. Absolutely. Um, and so I pursued it. I won a full scholarship to USC, the University of Southern California, here in Los Angeles, to study theater. And as a sophomore, um, I auditioned for this thing called Roots. Did you know what you were auditioning no, for? No, not at all. Although, I'm a firm believer in the idea that everything happens for a reason and that there are always signs, there are clues, right? My freshman year at USC, I did a term paper on Malcolm X and the autobiography of Malcolm X is co-written by Alex Haley. Who, if you don't know, he's the, the, the writer of Roots. Of Roots. Right. Yeah. So when I first heard of Alex Haley in connection to Roots, oh, you're like, I knew who he, I know who he is. I know who he is, right? So that was, that was a clue yeah. for me, looking back. It didn't feel like it then, it was yeah. just, huh. But looking back on it, I recognized that as, you know, something, a piece of information, feedback from the universe that you should pay attention to. They say right? you can only connect the dots looking backwards. That's and right. it's so strange yeah. when we have a culture, we, I think, it's evolving not as fast as I would like to personally. I, I, much like you, am a believer in intention, but also being open to a lot mm -hmm. of things. And you can dismiss things as coincidence. You can try and shush them. But just openness to me is a very, very powerful thing. I think tapping into that passion. So Alex Haley's name you recognized. You leaned in. You're like, oh, this could be a great, great thing because I know this guy. And then you, you get on set. And then, then I read the material. 
I read the sides, right? The, the, the short excerpts uh -huh. from the script that the actors are given to audition with. And everything that the character of Kunta Kinte said, did, and felt, I knew. I mean, I had a, an immediate, visceral, instinctive reaction. I felt like I knew who this kid was. Um, one thing led to another. March 27th, 1976, I was screen tested um, for the role. And several weeks later, um, after that screen test went back and forth from offices, ABC was the network that aired it, offices in New York and, and Los Angeles. They kept bouncing the decision back and forth and no one wanted to go on record as hiring the kid who had no previous professional experience. <laughs> Were we take a risk on yeah. this kid? Right. Um, and finally, uh, one day, um, I was brought to the offices of ABC uh, in Century City here in Los Angeles and uh, Alex Haley was there, David Wolper, the executive producer of Roots, and Stan Margulies, the line producer, were there. Um, and I talked to the executives for a little bit. We had just closed, um, every, every spring at USC, uh, the drama school does a musical, and we had just closed Oklahoma the night before. <laughs> and I had the part of Ali Hakim, the Persian rug dealer in Oklahoma, right? Um, and my mom had come down. She drove down from Sacramento and asked me if, she, if I wanted her to wait um, until after this meeting at ABC, because they had postponed this casting decision like several times. We were like not weeks into the process now, and I was like, no, Ma, you know, they're probably, they're not gonna make a decision today. Go ahead, get on the road. I'll call you, you know, when you get home. This is like, this is 19, this is April of 1976. There were no cell phones then, you know? Uh, <laughs> so it was like, I'll call you when you get home. Um, but they brought me into the office and they talked to me for, for a few minutes and then uh, um, they excused me and Stan Margulies came out and, and I'll, I'll never forget the, the moment. He said, pack your bags, kid, you're going to Savannah. Um, and that's where we shot the first three hours of Roots in seven weeks. Just, I just did some quick math. That was 40 years ago yesterday that you auditioned. March 27th, yeah. yeah, 40 years ago, yesterday. <laughs> and yet it doesn't feel like 40 years. That's my next question. It doesn't, I mean, there are days when it does. You know, there are days when uh, I do feel like I've been around for a long time, but for the most part, I, 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 it, it hardly seems possible that that much time has passed. I know that I'm a different person. I know that I have the value and benefit of of, of lots of experience and experiences um, in my life and career that inform who I am today. I would much rather be the person that I am today than that 19-year-old kid of 40 years ago. Um, I, I believe that I, I, as I sit here with you, I am, um, I am much better off having had the experiences that I have had, including those that are painful. I feel like I've, I've learned more from my failures in life than I have from my successes. Let's, let's go there for a second. So, you know, that, the last question was really about what guided you to make a, uh, what guided you to make the decisions that you've made yeah. along the way for creatively. Um, and I think if I was to characterize it, uh, to summarize your last answer, is very much about listening to your gut yeah. and the universe is delivering, being open to things like that. But, uh, as you look back, 
you've said very clearly just now that your failures, you've learned a lot more from them. Yeah. So what, what kind of failures did the 19, 20, 21 year old LeVar Burton make that informed the 23, 4, 5, yeah. 45, 55-year-old yeah. of our yeah. burden. What are, what are some yeah. of those? Uh, again, uh, the reason I want to shine a light on that stuff because what we get today in the media, even online, uh, is not a lot of vulnerability, a lot of chest beating, a lot of people are at home comparing their real lives to everybody else's highlight reel on social media. So yeah. let's talk about some things that are off your highlight reel that are, aren't talked about in that sort of young, when you were sort of trying to make your way in the world and, sure. and struggling. Yeah. Um, Becoming world famous at the age of 19 is not a journey I would recommend to anyone. I can imagine. I was on the cover of Time magazine when I was 19 years old. Oof. And, um, and I have learned since then that becoming successful at any age will take you through changes. Becoming, achieving that kind of success that early in life before you really have an opportunity to cement who you are as an adult is tremendously challenging. I can't even fathom. And add the additional pressure of having to figure out who I was in full view of the public eye. I, and, I, and, and having said that, I would not want to be a young person today with the today amount, oh, with the, the amount of oh. with the, the, the the number of different yeah. lenses that that are are on you that kind of scrutiny is really it's it's challenging so all all of the mistakes that i made um it seemed like they were all magnified and amplified because of of that that public lens um, so in a way, it's like there, when I'm thinking about putting myself in the shoes of the people on the other end of the camera, there's, there's a little bit to be uh, grateful for by not being on the cover of Time magazine when you're 19. Like, put in your time. Like, do the work. Yeah, do the work. Do the work. Do the work. I, I, there's, there's, it's an interesting thing. I, I, I find that a lot of kids today who want to get into the business want to be famous. They don't necessarily want to be artists. They don't want to be an actor or an actress. They want to mm. be famous. Mm. Um, Dangerous. My focus was on the work, right? I was, a, I was a Bachelor of Fine Arts major in college. My goal was to graduate with a BFA go to New York and hustle my way onto the Broadway stage. That was my dream. I wasn't thinking about television or film at all. Um, but even then, I, I recognized that it was important to have a plan, but be flexible you know, within that plan. So when the Roots opportunity came along, I totally went with it, right? Um, and, and that one opportunity certainly led to others. And, and right after Roots, I did a string of, of TV movies. And then in the beginning of the 80s, about 82, 83, the sort of the TV movie market dried up and the phone stopped ringing. And that was excruciatingly painful. What, and what age were you at that I point? was in my early 20s. So yeah, you, so the, the so, so the challenge became so, in, right out of the bat, right out of the gate, my first job blew up worldwide. How do I... That's how do you top that? I had to come to terms with the idea that I may never achieve that kind of success again in a 
in my career. And, that I, and I had to make peace with that. But I also had to make peace with, with myself. And what I discovered was that I hated sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. That, have, that giving the power to other people in terms of my ability to do that which I loved to do, there was a disconnect yeah, there. Bad dynamic there. Right. So what'd you do about it? I got busy, right? Um, looking for opportunities. I became my own advocate. That's huge. That's amazing advice right there. So many people, even in today's world where they're in that era, correct me if you think I'm wrong, on there were a lot of gatekeepers, right? You had a to lot. Be, you had to be selected to be in to the To have film. an agent, yeah. Yeah. right? Just to get in the door, to have an agent, to get in to, to see a casting director, to get an audition, to see a producer. I mean, there were gatekeepers all along the way. And for folks at home now is the uh, a time that's different than any other yeah. in that we don't require permission from anyone to go out and make something. Right. Uh, and yet, I, I would say one of the things that I, one of the questions that I get more than any is, it's very much about being one's own advocate. Like, oh, no one's picking me, no one's you know, reading my scripts, no one's, um, I mean, as simple as liking my photos on Facebook, which kills me to say, but the reality is that people are looking for validation. Mm -hmm. Any advice you'd give to those people? You know, we live in an, in an, in an era, you, you, you alluded to it, that is unlike any other that we've ever experienced in the history of, of civilization. And as much as we are experiencing a genuine democratization of content creation. And what's happening is that, that through technology, we all have the wherewithal and the ability to tell our own stories. Stories of our own choosing or even sharing our personal story. They say, when you're, when, when you're training to be, yourself to be a writer, they say, write what you know. We all have a remarkable story in ourselves. And there is, as you said, there's no one that can stop you from, from creating, from sharing your story or your art, your creativity. And, and if you pour your heart and soul into it, then you just have to have faith that you will find an audience. And it is incumbent upon you to be your own advocate. You, 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 have to, you have to not only be the artist and creator, you have to be the promoter too. <laughs> the you, distributor. You, the, the distributor, the you, chief you, bottle washer. You have to sweep hustler. up. You yeah. have to hustle. Yeah. You have to hustle. And, and I believe one's hustle is a sign of the, the degree to which one is really passionate about getting it done, mm. right? You, you cannot deny that. You cannot deny that. So where is your hustle game, right? <laughs> so did you have a hustle game? You I developed in? one. Yeah. I built one from scratch. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was just, it was simply a matter of, of taking stock in that which I knew how to do and then finding out those things that, that I didn't. At one point in my career, I had a real difficult time auditioning. I thought, LeVar Burton. Right. Who needs to audition? Uh, why, should I, why should I have to audition? And, and walking in the door with that kind of attitude Oof. was death. It was death. I was, I was killing myself before I was really fully in the room. Wow. That was a hard lesson to learn. And it only began to turn around when I 
undertook the job of, of introspection and dissecting, so what is going on? And I discovered that it was me, that I was blocking. I, I was producing the blocking energy and that it was incumbent upon me to turn it around. So when I then made a decision that walking into those rooms was an opportunity for me to do that which I loved, act, right? Boom. Back. Yeah. And, and oftentimes, it's nothing more than sitting down, getting some mirror time with yourself, and being really, really honest. Am, am I doing everything that I, I talk to myself? We, we do a lot of self-talk. And, 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 and It can be dangerous. Man. Well, not only dangerous, we can be very disingenuous with ourselves. We lie to ourselves all the time. We really need to be brutally honest with ourselves sometimes and, and, and ask ourselves the tough questions. Are you doing everything you, you think you're doing? Is your, is your hustle as strong as you say it is, right? And if it's not, then adjustments must be made. Otherwise, you're just screwing around. It's so powerful to sit next to someone who's been doing this for 40 years because we can talk about so so many different uh, challenges inspirations come out just naturally when you talk through a career mm. like successes failures what's going on the self-talk uh, Brene Brown has been a guest on the show before talks very much about vulnerability honesty and let's talk about that self-talk for a second one of the things that I'm um, motivated to try and help people understand is that there are Generally, we are our own worst critic. Yeah. And what if we could change that and have the same loving, compassionate voice mm -hmm. to ourselves or toward ourselves that we have to other people? Mm -hmm. How much better mm -hmm. we could, um, how much more effective we could be, how much more caring, more op open, to, um, open to success? Uh, how, how much of a part in your personal turnaround was your self-talk? Oh, it was essential. Absolutely essential, and 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 continues to be. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I with that just that one example, and, and you know, and, and there are, there are certainly others. It's in relationships, you know, um, just being my own worst enemy, um, and and you know, they say sometimes you don't you don't understand, you don't fully get the value of something until you've successfully pushed it away. You know, and that certainly happened to me. What's an um, example? Oh, I was uh, madly in love with a woman um, and did not know how to um, talk to her in a language. I didn't know how to communicate with her in a language that she understood as loving. Mm. I, was, I was using a language that I had developed over time and it was the language I was using but it wasn't, I wasn't successfully communicating. Sometimes, yeah, those are very different things. Yeah. I find myself sometimes, uh, I've, I've got a script that's going on in my mind that's sure. telling me what's, what's happening right here. Yeah. And sometimes there's something arrests me and I'm like, how real is that script? And I come to find out that the script is completely not, not based in reality. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and it goes back to the point that you made, which are, we are so often our own. Yeah. Worst enemies. So mm -hmm. you you were your own worst enemy for some time. Heading into um, as you were heading into auditions and mm -hmm. uh, and you managed to pull yourself out of it. Yep. Uh, 
positive self-talk, a little bit of recheck. Go ahead. Creating a circle of, of, uh, of friends that I could really trust became critically important to me. Creating, um, creating within my life trusted voices for feedback became really Was it personal feedback, creative feedback, uh, all, mostly all things? personal yeah. because be, because it was it was that experience that really sort of propelled me on a journey of self-discovery, you know? I recognized that that there was still a lot that you know, <laughs> a lot of work to do. <laughs> there was a lot of work to do, yeah. absolutely. There was a lot of work to do. And 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 in my early to mid 20s, I committed completely to learning as much as I could about how I operate as a human being. And that involved everything from uh, firewalking with Tony Robbins to different healing modalities, jumping out of airplanes. I mean, I'm sort of an energy junkie anyway, you know, and <laughs> I, I, I like experience. Um, but I would go, I, I would just, I was open to whatever could bring me more information about me and how I operate and, and how to better maximize what I instinctively felt was a really good person who had great intentions, but kept getting in his own way. Yeah. I'm a huge advocate of self-care. We look at artists, the Jim Morrisons, the Janis Joplins, yeah. who've had such a, you know, the, oh, that's the, this romantic notion of creativity and yet... And suffering going hand in hand yeah. and, 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 and self-abuse being a part of that creative process. I, I suppose for them that was true on some level, but look, I'm in my 40th year of doing this. I, I, by definition, I want, to, I want to make a lasting impact. And in order to do that, and it takes energy as well as presence to change the world. You can't change the world from an absentee point of view. I think that might be something that we might see on a quote somewhere. <laughs> something that's, I think that might make the internet go boom. Well said, well said. So you, you, you reclaim yourself. Yes. And then what's your it's next? It's a great way to put it. What's the next phase? Um, the next phase is to continue to be open to what, what comes next, right? By reconnecting with the self, it gave me an opportunity to really reconnect with my creativity. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and right around that time, Star Trek The Next Generation came into my life. Right. What, how does that? How, how do you? How do? You, how does one just fall into to Star Trek? I mean, that's like one of the most iconic things in our culture. Well, it's a, it's a, a funny story. <laughs> Again, I believe everything happens for a reason. Many, many years ago, it was like 1980, the mid mid early 80s, I guess 80, 82, 83. I did a, a TV movie called Emergency, um, and one of the producers of, and it was it was not a very good movie, at all. Um, but one of the producers on the project was a man named Bob Justman, Robert H. Justman. Now, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. I watch Star Trek all the time when I was growing up, the original series, that is, because I'm a science fiction fan. And as I was growing up, it was very rare for me to encounter heroes in the pages of those novels who looked like me, right? Yeah. Gene Roddenberry's vision, however, was one that embraced people of color, and so I embraced Star Trek. I was a huge fan. So I recognized that Robert H. Justman was an associate producer on the original Star Trek. So every day I would find a reason to sit next to him and just you know, like pump him for stories about Star Trek. You know? Wow. And he remembered, years later, he remembered my passion 
for Star Trek. It's crazy how it all comes back to it, passion. It does. It absolutely does. And when he was working with Gene Roddenberry at Paramount to launch The Next Generation, they had this character, Joey LaForge, and Bob remembered how passionate I was about Trek and called me up and said, would you be interested in, in, in coming in and seeing us about a Star Trek series? And I said, I, one question, one question only, is Gene Roddenberry involved? He said, yes. I said, I'll be there. I'm in, absolutely. absolutely. So you presumably auditioned? auditioned absolutely, oh yeah. Even though you're LeVar Burton? But, but <laughs> by then I had learned my lesson, That's right. Right? That's right? I couldn't wait to get in the room, Yeah. right? That's the difference. I, I couldn't that wait is, to get in the room. That energy is contagious. Oh my goodness, know? oh absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I, I wanted to compete for the role. I wanted to show people what I could do. Um, and, and, I, and I got the part. And not only did you get the part, but you knocked it out of the park. Yeah, yeah. So again, now take us through. This is a different world, right? You're uh, you're now playing a. Uh, I don't know. How, how, rather me putting words. In, how, how do you look at the role? Like what? Well, I look at the you're role. Because you're a science fiction nerd. You like. You, does this like you're coming home? What is it like? Very much. Very much coming home. I mean, walking into be, becoming a member of the cast of Star Trek: The Next Generation. I, I I don't know that I have actual words to express what that means to me on a personal level, given you know, my love for the, for the franchise. And showing up for people dealing with physical challenges the very same way that Nichelle Nichols showed up for me mm -hmm. as a person of color on the bridge of the Enterprise, the original Enterprise. You know? So for people dealing with you know, physical challenges of all kinds. Um, and and Jordy represented for the nerds too. Jordy represented for you know for for those of us who um, are maybe a bit socially awkward, um, who do relate more to um, inanimate objects than we do other human beings. Um, and and I think that in the mix of that family. Jordy was probably the most relaxed in terms of his confidence. You know, Jordy knew he was a great engineer, um, and he and he knew that he was in the tradition of great Starfleet engineers. Um, and I I, I like that about Jordy. I like the fact that he was that that he never talked about the fact that he was blind. Is there some connection between? the blindness of the character? Did you feel like when you stepped into that role that there was some, that you were, uh, you know, because you also can see there was a the real, visor. There was is a it visor? Real, is that what The called? visor, yeah. yeah. There, was a, there, was, there was a real challenge, uh, there was a real gift of challenge in, in, in that role for, for LeVar, for me as an actor, um, because I had come to really rely on my eyes acting on film as, you know, my go-to your sense, yeah. yeah. It was my strong suit. It was the, the, the first tool in, in the bag that I would go to. Um, having my eyes covered for, for several years, for what, seven, eight years, plus four movies. Um, <laughs> that really, that's crazy. <laughs> Who has a career like that? That's nuts. It really caused me to have to learn how to communicate without my eyes. And so I know that the time that I spent on Star Trek made a much better actor out of me, and and forced me to, you know, to to communicate without without people being able to see my eyes. Did you have a sense that you were sort of facilitating 
an understanding for people who had physical disabilities, or was mm -hmm. that something that was very, like, was that a conscious? I knew I knew from the beginning, based on you know my my knowledge of the original trek and and how much it had impacted me, this young black kid growing up in Sacramento, California. I knew that the potential existed. You know, I knew yeah. that 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 if we did our jobs right and if we told the kinds of stories um, that that the original trek did, the original series, that we could have that very important social commentary um, in our storytelling. And, and yeah, and it, it was unconscious, but it was definitely yeah. there. That's a thing that I, I am maybe most hopeful for uh, of anything in the world right now is just new levels of empathy. Uh, I still think we've got a, a million light years to go to maybe make a science fiction reference, but uh, I am I am encouraged by a new level of empathy, and I don't know if it's the millennials or it's just the, the speed at which information's moving. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm. I just wanted to put a feather or put a pin in that. Mm. I'm. I'm mm -hmm. uh, I like where it's going, but uh, when you're now looking back in that seven, eight years mm -hmm. and four movies. Mm -hmm. We said earlier you can connect the dots looking backwards. What what dots do you connect after having played uh, Georgie for that long? Well, Georgie for me, the, and, the, and, and the years on Star Trek were on a professional level about about the eyes and communication. On a personal level, it was about the relationships. Uh, I was gifted with an unbelievable wealth of relationships during that time. Um, the cast of the, of the Next Generation, we are an incredibly close-knit group of people and we have seen, we've, we've been together next year 30 years. So we've seen each other through marriages and divorces and the you know, passing of, of parents and family members and the births of our children and passage after passage after rite of passage we have shared with one another. When I got married, uh, in 1989, Brent Spiner was my best man, and my groomsmen were Michael Dorn, Jonathan Frakes, and Patrick Stewart, which makes for a pretty, pretty kick-ass like wedding good, photo. <laughs> Good-looking people right there. <laughs> I met my wife during the hiatus between seasons number one and number two of Star Trek The Next Generation. My some of my closest associations, some of my closest and deepest and most cherished relationships came to me during that period of my life. How much of, how much of that is about just the openness that you have to have in the creative process? And you go to work with, I mean, I look at the people, we've been traveling all over the country producing mm. these, and I feel a lot closer to the, you know, mm -hmm. when you're like, mm -hmm. sort of. You're, you're in the trenches you're with them the every trenches day. Yeah. every day. Yeah. Uh, how much of that do you feel like was, you were open to relationships because you were actually putting it out, doing the work, being open, uh, you know, is, it, is there a connection there? There absolutely is a, a, a connection. You know, where you are in your life is a, can, can be a mirror for, you know, for, for what comes back to you. But in the, I also believe that in the case of, of the next-gen cast, there's, there's something chemical ab about us in combination, just those personalities together. When we're together, we make one another laugh more than any, anybody else in our respective lives. And when we're together, it's, it's, it's like being with your 
high school best friends, <laughs> right? And you just slip right back into that rhythm and all the old jokes and, and it, it's just- new again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it really is like that with us. Um, so yeah, I, I, I believe that it was that time in my life when I had, you know, I was in my 30s and I was really, you know, I had, I had learned a thing or two and I had really um, begun to place my values and my emphasis on what I really wanted in life differently. You talked about earlier, like building community and, yeah. and having people close to you that you could right. personally that you could lean that's on. Right. That's right. That's, that's a, right. That's right. That's right. It seems like that's that's one thing. Uh, I, f I feel like it gets a bad rap. Oh, the internet. We're always on our phones, but there is this sort of connection now mm -hmm. that uh, that well, I don't know if it's. I, I, I'm struggling for words, obviously, but. Uh, well, I think that every generation tends to you know, invent themselves as they go along, right? And this generation is, is, is no different. And you can find a community for anything that you yeah, want, you can. literally. And yes, that's, you can. That's a, yes, you can. If, if you want to paint pictures of deceased presidents on Tuesday and sell them for five grand, right. there are 10,000 other people like that. So what that means is that the idea of what community is and how one connects to community is being expanded. And it's, it's difficult for the previous generation to, to be okay with that because we've only been able to experience community in this limited, narrow bandwidth of expression. Yeah. So there's a lot of judgment about, you know. Or about, that Apple commercial where the kid's sitting on his phone the whole time yeah. and everyone's judging him and yeah. then at the end he plays the movie that he made for the family. Hello. Boom. Um, yeah. yeah. Right. All right. So you're on the backside, seven, eight years, yeah. four movies. Yeah. I, if you said it earlier, like how can you? Now how do you top that? Because you already couldn't top roots, <laughs> roots, yeah. and now right. you got another thing that you can't top. Well, the thing so. that I learned immediately post roots was in in terms of my career was that it was going to be impossible to top it. So the the thing that I could really commit myself to was finding finding a way to do my best work with every opportunity, and um, and that's when I found reading Rainbow, um, and that became a a, a place for me to really sink my time, effort, and energy into. And it was the Roots experience, really, that, that sort of led me into um, reading Rainbow. And as much as I watched our nation become transformed in eight nights of television around our idea of slavery. There was a, an America before Roots, I like to say, and then there was an America after Roots, and they were not the same country. Before Roots, we talked about slavery as sort of this economic engine. Um, and after Roots, we, you couldn't talk about that economic engine without considering the enslaved, the people involved in that equation, and the, and the damage that was done to, to generations of human beings. And so um, it, it really opened my eyes that this very powerful medium of, of television could be a really dynamic tool for raising consciousness. I love that. And I love that terminology. And so when the idea for Reading Rainbow was initially pitched to me, it was actually counterintuitive. Let's go to where our kids, this is in the 80s, are spending an, an awful lot of their time, especially during the summer vacation, right? Yeah. And, and, and 
teachers know about the summer slide. When a child is learning how to read and they take that three-month vacation and go sit in front of the television, their reading and comprehension skills plummet. So let's use that opportunity of access and steer them back in the direction of the written word through storytelling. I thought, yeah. It's like hacking the, yeah, <laughs> hacking the system. Right, hacking the, the system, right? To get an, 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 an unintended outcome, right? But we had an intention. We had an intention to make a connection to turn the kids who could read into readers for life. That was the thing, right? That, that certainly had something to do with your, your mom. Yeah, absolutely. Is that why it drew you to the project? It was, it was, it was that. It was the, 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 the knowledge that I certainly, my life had been immeasurably uplifted by being a reader and, and engaging in my imagination, right? Um, and that if we could, if I could pass that passion on to kids out there, right? And get them excited about reading and the written word, that perhaps their lives might be enhanced as well. I love, it's gonna be natural when I say this, that I love learning beyond the school, beyond, mm -hmm. I mean, that's again what Creative yeah. Live is all about. Right is providing uh, a different, and I think maybe even in many cases, uh, elevated experience uh, that transcends the four walls of a school right. or the mentality that school brings. Uh, I, I talk about if our, our parents had one job, we will have five and our mm -hmm. next generation will have five at the same time and mm -hmm. we need a school system that can prepare us for that and that's not what we have now, so mm -hmm. we're gonna have to expand. Our idea of, yeah. what, of what educating our kids looks like. For sure. Yeah. And, but this was a long time ago, Reading Rainbow. Really, it was, it, it was a, an early attempt at using prevailing technology it's the to, same to promote we, learning. It is. It's the right. same thing that we're doing yeah. right now with, right. with the net. Right. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's the same thing that, that I've, I've, I'm doing now with, with Skybrary and moving the Reading Rainbow franchise online. Are our kids? Are our kids. Talk about that. Well, so... The, so in 2009, Reading Rainbow was taken uh, out of the ready-to-learn lineup in, at PBS. It was, in essence, canceling the series. And After how many years? Uh, 26 consecutive seasons on PBS. Third longest-running children's show on PBS behind Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. That's a pretty good third place. Pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty proud of that. That's pretty incredible. Proud of that. So 26 years in, they 26 say, hey, years, they, they, like, yeah. it's, it's, we, we need to move on. And I thought, wow. This is an opportunity. I mean, it was a very sad day for one because you know obviously I had a huge emotional investment in the show, but we hadn't we hadn't done a new episode of Reading Rainbow since 2006, and it was sort of inevitable. But you know, when you finally get the pink slip, it it doesn't hurt any less. You know that you've been anticipating it for some time. But there was a a, a piece on NPR um, about the cancellation of Reading Rainbow, and they had people calling in. And I was sitting in my business partner's backyard. We were listening to the radio, and there were people calling in saying, I can't believe that Reading Rainbow is not going to be there for my kids. That's, that's like, that's not okay. Yeah. And a light bulb went off. It was like, well, this is an opportunity. Let's see if we can't get the rights to Reading Rainbow. And so that began a, a, a process, a year-long process. Um, we made a deal, ultimately, with WNED the Buffalo Public Television Station, um, for uh, an exclusive 
license uh, mm. for the original 150 some odd episodes as well as creating new Reading Rainbow content as long as it wasn't a new television series. And I thought, well, now we don't need, we've done TV. This, there's a whole new generation of digital natives that need to be served by this idea of using technology to promote a connection to literature. And when the iPad came out, it was like, boom, okay, here we go. Storytelling. That was always the hallmark of Reading Rainbow when it was a television series. Taking a, a, a book, a story, and telling that story, and then allowing the th a theme or, or, or a subject matter brought up in the book to inform an experience, a, a place that we visited, a, an experience that we had connecting the real world to the literature, giving kids an idea that the world is a full of, 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 of experiences, and you just have to expose yourself to enough before you find out where you land. And so, we raised a little money, built a team, built the Reading Rainbow app, released it in 2012, um, and shot to the top of, of educational apps. That was when we were at Sundance. That was when we yeah. were at Sundance. Yeah. That's when we first met. Yeah. Yep. And, and that, as it turns out, was just the beginning of a journey <laughs> that, that has, has taught me so, so much. Uh, about being an entrepreneur, about um, about staying the course, about um, you 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 can never predict um, the end of the story in the first chapter, <laughs> right? So true. And and just it's it's been it's been a real real journey of of process and perseverance. Um, continually trying to raise money, getting no traction from traditional venture capitalists and those that were interested were interested in, in building the company to flip it. That's not what yeah. I'm doing here. I'm trying to be a part of the solution to how we educate our kids in America and, and I'm not really interested in, in, in flipping this company. I want this company to, to make a difference. So it was, it was some of that, that that desperation that led us to Kickstarter in 2014. We weren't getting any love from the VC world, and so we thought, well, let's do a crowdfunding campaign. So bold, and, but I, uh, you said something I want to latch onto for a second, and that's, it, it made you capable of things you didn't think you were capable yeah, of in absolutely. the best way. Like, there's something you're passionate about, and the folks out there, um, as a founder myself, uh, I say shit gets hard. <laughs> like you better go back to your passion comment. Like if you were, you will be challenged. If you were doing a, uh, a startup where you start your own company based on market opportunity, you are effed because yeah. like something's gonna come up and it's gonna get real hard. And yeah. if you don't care about it, yeah. like like it's your child. Yes. You're, not you're gonna, gonna get crushed. Yeah, you're gonna get, you're crushed, gonna get crushed because there's someone out there who's on the other side of the fence, or your neighbor, or something who's working on something that they're passionate about yeah. and deeply passionate about. Such when shit gets hard, yeah. that's when there's this. That next passion year. will sustain you through 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 difficult times, you know, better than anything else. It will, and you have to care so deeply, you have and to. you have to care deeply enough to get told no from venture and decide we are going to do it anyway. Again, do, do it, it anyway. anyway. We're gonna find a way. And not only did done. you find a way, but you guys again 
incredible. Was it the most one of the most at the successful? time? It was it was the most. Uh, well, Oculus has come along now. Well, it, but it, it, at the time in in in, I think in May of 2014, it was the most backers ever for a campaign. 105,000 people donated to the Reading Rainbow Kickstarter campaign. It's like an Obama campaign. It was it, it was crazy, <laughs> and it, it was money from everywhere. And and in in the Kickstarter world, there there are obviously other pl crowdfunding platforms, but in the Kickstarter world, it was really the first cause-oriented campaign. It wasn't a product. It wasn't an Oculus Rift. It wasn't a Pebble Watch. It was really about a, a cause. It was if you if you believe that reading Rainbow deserves to be there for another generation, come and join us how in this effort. How can you not? How can you not? Oh. So, um, what was it? 100, how many, we, 105,000 <laughs> people. And how much, what was the cash number? We, we were looking to, to raise a million dollars in 35 days. We raised a million dollars in 11 hours on day one. The campaign itself went on to raise 5.4 million, and then Seth MacFarlane came in at the very end and gave us a matching million dollar grant. God. And this is 2000. This was 2014. 14. Yeah, 2014. So the, the people have spoken in that case. They did. They definitely did. They and it was overwhelming, um, and wonderful, and and at the same time. Then we had to figure out how do you fulfill <laughs> rewards oh, <man>. for 105,000 <laughs> people? How do you keep 105,000 people happy? Well, the, the, the real Turns answer is it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. it's hard. It's hard. However, we have been, you know, absolutely committed, and you know, the fans have been really patient, um, and we have figured it out. Yeah, we have figured it out, and a lot of it is personal fulfillment on my part: signing autographs, signing books. Uh, Skype calls, recording outgoing voicemail messages. Um, oh, that was one of the. Uh, that was practice. these were all these were all rewards. Can you for, record a, a outgoing message for me just on the, on the air right now? You've got my voicemail. I'm Chase, and I can't get to the phone. What does what does Lavar Burton from Reading Rainbow say on these messages? Hi, this is Lavar Burton. Chase can't come to the phone right now, but leave a name and number, and he'll call you back. But you don't have to take my word for it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that. I'm gonna pull that. You got me. So you're fulfilling. So we're fulfilling. So two years later, we are still fulfilling some. We still have some dinners here in LA and in New York. We still have some school visitations. I think all of the T-shirts and all of the coffee cups and all of the, you know, the the, the refrigerator magnets and bookmarks. I think all of those are done, but we still have some experience um, rewards that we are fulfilling. Um, and then there was the job of making good on the promise. The Kickstarter campaign was called Every Child Everywhere. And the money that we raised on Kickstarter enabled us to take what was first an app and then port it to the web. So now we're available in, on tablet computers, on, on the iPad platform, on the Kindle Fire, on Android. We're also now on the web. Right, wow. eighty percent or more of the country has access to the World Wide Web, where twenty percent of our audience has tablet computers. So it was about every child, everywhere. And then we discovered that teachers were taking the consumer service and sort of rigging the system. You could have five profiles on the consumer version, and they were loading up five and six kids on a profile so they could use the Reading Rainbow content, our digital library of books and videos, with their students. And we thought, well, we can do better than that. So we used, again, the, the Kickstarter opportunity 
to develop and build and then deploy just this month a version of our product, the Reading Rainbow Library, a thousand books, over 250 video field trips that we call Skybrary School for teachers to use in the classrooms with their students with 40 lesson plans and the ability to roster 35 kids and it's a turnkey solution. They've got printables that can be downloaded, printed out and distributed. I mean, it's, it's, it's the whole kit. All of our books are Common Core aligned um, and, and it's the reading rainbow magic. It's matching the literature and the real world experience through the video field trip and communicating to kids, you know, go anywhere. If, uh, if we could ask the folks at home to take some action that would support you in this endeavor, is there a particular action that would? Uh... Um, yeah, go to readingrainbow.com and, and, and check it out. If there are kids in your life that, um, that need to reach their full potential, see, I believe that you can't reach your full potential in life without being a reader. You could be successful. Many people have become incredibly successful without, without being literate. But you won't reach your full potential in life. I don't, I will say most of the people that I know that uh, run at an RPM that I like and, mm -hmm. and have been really influential to me are voracious readers. Right. Like a book a week yeah. kind of people. Right. And here's why. I believe it's because it is, it, it is the act of reading that connects us to our imagination. The imagination is the superpower of the human being. No other animal in creation that we know of is able to apply their imagination in the way that humans are, right? We can, we can think of a, we, we can invent something out of thin air. Everything in this and room. And everything we, in this yeah. room began as a thought, yeah. an idea, right? By a creator, by, by an artist, yeah. By a creator, exactly right. So it is reading that connects us to that superpower, that facility for imagining, right? And, and that is our uniquely human superpower. Is okay. there, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot too much here, but uh, outside of children's books, speaking mm. of books, are mm. there some books that you are expressly passionate about? That, uh, I mean, it's, I, I hate getting asked this question. Yeah, because but you like, know what? Like, where do I start? There's a thousand uh, books there, that I've read. Lots, I mean, lots, 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 lots. Um, you know, for anyone on, interested in, um, in self-discovery, right? Uh, there's a wonderful book by M. Scott Peck, M.D., called The Road Less Traveled. Um, powerful book. It's a powerful, powerful book. Um, Tony Robbins is a friend and, Incredible. and a, a powerful speaker and, and a, a damn good writer. Um, Tony has some real powerful things to say about- He's doing a lot of good stuff online, too. About energy yeah. and passion and following your dreams and maximizing your potential. Um, and science fiction. My uh, wife, she's like, I, I mean, I'm not as into science fiction as she is, yeah. and I feel bad for it all the time, because she's always reading. I mean, I know names like Isaac Asimov, mm -hmm. and, but she's uh, like, like the covers are up overhead, and I'm like, what are you reading? She's like, oh, just another science fiction. The people who are into that are into it. Here's, here's the thing. Just look at Star Trek. Look at all of the technological innovation that we have today that was inspired by Star Trek. For sure. The flip cell phone, the Bluetooth earpiece, the iPad, 
right? FaceTime, right? <laughs> FaceTime. We're, we're working on geosynchronous systems architecture, a way to maximize computing power in real time that will, in the next five years, get us really close to the holodeck, right? That which we imagine is what we tend to manifest in this realm. It is how creativity works. It, human beings are the, the filter as well as the delivery system for inspiration. That's a, about as simply as I can put it. I think that might be quotable as well. <laughs> we, are, we, we, are the, we, we are the medium through which inspiration becomes real. Well, you are an inspiration to many, and I want to switch to a little speed round here and ask some okay. LeVar Burton-specific questions. All right, here we go. What's something that people don't know about you that if they found out, they would be surprised? A lot of people are surprised that I studied for the priesthood. I'm very surprised. Yeah. I feel like I should know that. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, yeah. Um, I mean, have you been open about that? or is this Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of people are surprised that my children are 35 and 21. That's not a lot of people are surprised that my granddaughter is 14. You have a granddaughter that's 14? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So there's also a, a line like, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? You could go back, and but, but I don't want to go there. I want, what could you tell yourself from yesterday? What did you learn yesterday? In an attempt to share that everyone's, we're all always learning, even at your level. Mm. Yesterday I learned. I share this country with a lot of people who do not agree with me politically. And yet, what I learned yesterday is how important it is for me to be open to their points of view. Because if, if I shut them out simply because we think differently, then I'm ignoring a voice that's crying out for expression. And I would never want anyone to automatically dismiss me for a silly reason. As simple to remedy as, as that. Wow, that's, thank you. That's uh, an important thing. I'm gonna pull on that string a little bit more. Mm -hmm. You talked uh, before, uh, and before we started rolling the cameras, mm -hmm. not, I brought up the, the concept of race relations, and mm. it's something I feel like having this platform is, uh, it's, it's um, something that I need to elevate as much as possible. Mm. And you, I'll say corrected me, because I think it's a really, it's an interesting, um, it was helpful for me in that mm. moment when you said, it's not about race relations, it's about America. Mm -hmm. Big difference there. Can you talk mm -hmm. to me about that for a second? Yeah, you know, having, having, Having been in Roots, and Roots having been my first job, and, and how impactful! These, I can't even like. Oh. And these last forty years of my life, um, um, being a journey where I have really tried to identify where I could be effective, a tool for for change um, in this world, um, and and again the re our our efforts to remake Roots this year, and the timing, just the the sheer timing that that. Here, 40 years later, we have so much unrest, so, um, so many opportunities to see where injustice still lives in America 
and that the seeds of what we're experiencing today really did begin 200 years ago and are institutionalized to the point where it is difficult sometimes to see them because they are so much a part of the fabric of what happens in this country. So I, I genuinely believe that if you are an American, if you are alive and, and a part of this experiment called democracy, then Roots is your story because it is the story of how this nation was founded. It is the story of how we harnessed the, the power that this nation became and rose to the level of, of world power. Um, and, and we did that on, on the backs of people of color and with the blood, sweat, toil, and tears of my ancestors and to have and, and, to, and to be, to come from a people where only three or four, three generations ago, it would have been illegal for me to know how to read. Yeah. And to have grown up and become a symbol for childhood literacy. That's, that's flipping the script. That's man. only in America. Could that kind of a journey be possible? So we do live in a country that provides great opportunity for its citizens. And we are still in an experiment, and, and it's not a perfect one. We get it wrong every day, as much if not more than we get it right. But it doesn't mean that we stop striving. And unless we are willing to have that, take that honest look at ourselves as a nation and recognize where we're getting it wrong, and have the courage to make course corrections, self-corrections, then we're, we're only going to continue to trip ourselves up. I, uh, I had a conversation not too long ago with um, Anthony Ray, who also goes by the name of Sir Mix a lot, mm -hmm. um, and he's been a friend for a long time, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm trying to at the same time, not pretend that uh, we can talk about something that has the gravity that this has mm. in five minutes on an internet talk show host, mm. an internet talk show, mm. but um, at the same time, don't let that be the reason not to have the conversation when yeah. it's appropriate to have it. Yeah. So I'm trying to navigate that in yeah. the best way that I can. Mm -hmm. And one thing that, uh, that Mix said, uh, and I'm gonna uh, offer this to you for comment, mm. it's about the conversation. Yeah. So talk to me about the conversation that we're not having that we should be or that we are having and we need to accelerate. Just in the context of conversation, tell us something that, that how we can continue along this path that you talk about. Here's what I know. 40 years ago, Roots really initiated a national conversation about race in America. And it was the first time that the story of slavery was told from the point of view of the people of color. It had never been, it was revolutionary. It had never been done before. 40 years later, it is clear that we need, that we must continue that conversation. And I'm hoping, I'm praying that Roots once again can give us an excuse to have this much needed conversation where we can sit across from one another in honest, meaningful, respectful dialogue and figure out what is it that continues to hold us back 
so that we can make a choice as to whether or not we want to release it, let it go, or not. Well, thank you very much for producing that series or co-producing, co-exec producing it. Co-exec produce. It's, um, I'm very much looking forward to it. I didn't know it was so soon. I'd heard when it was announced, and I also had heard that you were a part of it, uh, which seemed very natural to me. Gifts that you want for your children? Like what kind of a what kind of a world are you trying to create for them? Mm. Your children and your children's children. You mentioned mm-hmm. having a fourteen-year-old granddaughter. Mm-hmm. I want I want to be a part of creating a world for them that is just and fair, um, and 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 lives up to the promise of America. This is a nation that was founded upon the principle of all men being created equal and all men and women being free to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. I want, I want to make that a reality for generations to come, and I believe that the key is literacy, at least one of them. If you can read in at least one language, then you are free, in my definition, because no one can impose their will on you. You really have the power to pick up a book, take a look, you can find out for yourself, you can self-educate. No one then can dominate you with their point of view. Being a learner for life is the antidote to slavery and an informed populace. And an informed populace is essential for a healthy democracy. Beautiful. It's a beautiful cycle that you just uh, painted for us there. Is there something that, uh, what's a part of your daily routine? Mm -hmm. Um, I try and like unearth things that any person who's listening mm-hmm. can pick up yeah. and do on a daily basis. Yep. Not necessarily just to get closer to LeVar, but you've clearly unlocked a lot of things for yourself and mm-hmm. for the people around you. Mm-hmm. Are there some habits that you Taking share? care of myself. Yeah, I've learned how important it is to take care of myself. I travel a lot. I'm on the road quite a bit. I can imagine. Um, and uh, with speaking engagements and, and, and work and, and whatnot. Um, I've learned how important taking care of myself is and that I, I cannot be a, an effective tool for change in the world if I'm not operating at maximum efficiency in my body and in my mind. So mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, my job is to make sure I'm healthy. What are some things you do? Um, stretch, breathe. I used to practice yoga. I used to meditate. I used to do all of these things that have served as foundations for what I do actually do do. So I try and stretch and breathe every day. I spend a lot of time in water. There's a place here in Los Angeles that gives me an opportunity to go and soak, right? Mm. I'm a big fan of sauna and steam um, and, uh, and immersing myself in water. Um, I like, I like to sweat and I like to breathe, so I try and make sure that I do that several times a week. Isn't it weird those things are like th- known to be healthy things yeah. and thousands and thousands yeah. of years old and yeah. we're right. just sort yeah. of rediscovering right. them now? I drink a lot of water and, I, and, and you know, I, I enjoy myself, you know? Um, I, be, I believe in moderation in most things, yeah. right? So, except moderation. Except moderation. Um, <laughs> So I, you know, I like food. Um, I like I like beer. I like wine. I like whiskey. Um, I try not to overindulge in any of it. Um, that way, I get to keep doing it. It's fair. Yeah. Uh, what questions? Like, uh, I'm guessing with your new project, 
um, with the new Roots project coming mm -hmm. out, mm -hmm. that you're a busy guy. I'm very sensitive of the time. Mm -hmm. We've been going for a long time here, and I want to know, I want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything that you could uh, tell us that you want us to do around the Roots release uh, other than watch it? Mm. And where should we look for it? Um, yeah, I, I, I want to let everybody know that, uh, that Roots, the remake of Roots airs this coming Memorial Day weekend. Okay. Um, May 30th, and it will be simulcast on the networks of A&E. So it'll be simulcast on History Channel, uh, Lifetime, and Arts and Entertainment. So, um, wow, how'd you pull that off? <laughs> that was that was their commitment. You wow. know, History Channel really, really stepped up and and supported our desire to tell this story again um, for a new generation, and uh, and they have brought they've they've really brought it. They've they've brought their their support. Um, and financially, uh, as, as well as their ideas and their creativity. So um, we're really, really grateful, all of us on the producing line, for, for the networks of A plus E. They've really stepped up. Well, um, I'm really proud of it. Our, our cast is phenomenal. Forrest Whitaker, Lawrence Fishburne, Anika Noni Rose. <laughs> That's a crazy um, cast. It's yeah, incredible. Uh, Anna Paquin, Jonathan Rhys Myers, uh, Derek Luke. I'm, I'm very excited. And, and, I, Malachi Kirby as Kunta Kinte is gonna blow your mind. This young man is phenomenal. Well, if the man who originally played him had a role in casting him, I'm, something tells me you took a little bit of pride and you were very I, careful I, with that we choice. We were very careful and, um, and I believe at the end of the day we chose right. Well, you said the word uh, gratitude for all the things that the networks have done for you. Yeah. I would like to express some gratitude on behalf of myself um, the folks who tune into Creative Live, my, my uh, personally, it's been a treat to uh, reconnect with you after a few years of Waste and Sundance, and just thank you very much for being with us here today. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. This is a once in a long lifetime to get to sit down with this man. I hope you took many things away, and stay tuned for another one of these in the not too distant future. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say a a huge thank you. B let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it if that's a platform that you enjoy. Uh, check me out there as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this also. Uh, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.